Welcome. This is Cascade Church Portland's podcast. We exist to invite all people to join us as we follow Jesus together in bringing heaven to earth. All right. Good morning, gals. (laughs) Did anybody read their newsletter this week from Kurt? (laughs) Okay. He gave you a heads up that we're going to be talking about gender this morning. Yep. And he gave an example of how um, we tend to default to male-gendered language. And you'll walk in the room, you say, hello, guys, even if there's a woman in the room, right? The English language doesn't make it easy for us to figure out how to address a mixed group. But we do have Texas, so good morning, (laughs) y'all. Uh, my name is Harriet Congdon, and um, we're in our third week in their series on power dynamics. The first week, Connie Baker um, unpacked power dynamics and in interpersonal relationships. And then last week, Kurt talked about religious systems, churches, where there are power dynamics. And today I'm going to address gender. I mean, where do I start? <laughs> okay, this is a, a huge topic. And it's definitely relevant to our culture today. Um, I don't know if any of you are following the controversy that unfolded this last week, from the, this last weekend, from the Women's U.S. Open, and that exchange between Serena Williams and the umpire, Carlos Ramos. Um, this photo depicts that power differential pretty well. And it's complicated, even more so for Williams, because she's a black woman. She's a black woman in a predominantly white sport. Now, there's no way I'm going to be able to cover power and gender this morning. So I'm going to narrow it down to how it plays out in the church. And even then, I'm only going to be able to offer a small slice of the conversation. Let me begin by defining what patriarchy is, which actually does still apply to the broader culture. Here is a definition I found helpful. A patriarchal society consists of a male-dominated power structure throughout organized society and in individual relationships. Power is related to privilege. In a system in which men have more power than women, men have some level of privilege to which women are not entitled. So patriarchy is not just a system where men are occupying the top of the organizational chart. It's a way of thinking um, that places more weight on what men say than what women say. A few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Sarah shared with us an experience that she had in this meeting where she offered an idea, and it was like completely ignored until a man suggested the very same idea, and it was immediately responded with affirmation. Great idea. Besides a way of thinking, patriarchy is also a value system. It says that what men need and want is more important than what a woman needs or wants. And this way of thinking, these values, they can also be adopted by women, not just men, but women as well. To change a system or to change those deep-seated values and expose hidden biases, um, it's not easy. Men and women, 
And if you're someone that's in the church trying to address power differentials between men and women, it is doubly difficult. Why do I say that? Why do I say that it's more difficult to talk about power and gender in the church? Anybody? The Bible? <laughs> oh, no, you do read your Bible. No, it's all right. Yeah, we, sometimes we, it's really hard to read the Bible if you struggle with power dynamics. Yeah, we have a sacred text that at a surface read seems to support male dominance and the control of power. And any effort to change those dynamics is met with scriptural arguments. And often a person feels like they're in this catch-22. If you want to reject patriarchy, you feel like you have to reject the Bible. And for a lot of Christian women, where this is a deal-breaker, it often means leaving the church, or maybe even the faith. For women, living in a world of patriarchy means having to constantly adapt and translate. It happens with Bible versions and with worship songs. I, I, love, I love the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. But when we come to that verse with that line that says, Thou my great Father and I thy true Son, I have to translate that to daughter, okay? It's exhausting sometimes, or else I'm going to end up, if I can't translate, I'm going to end up on the outside of this relationship with God and a worship experience. Often I shut down. Besides the support of gendered language, those who control the dynamic um, will establish roles defined by gender rather than gifts and abilities. Ideal stereotypes are set up to control women, especially the stereotype of a gentle, soft-spoken woman who never gets angry and who only dreams of having a husband and children. But what happens if you don't fit that picture of a biblical woman that's defined by men? Recently, Leroy Barber, um, who's going to be here in a couple weeks to talk about race and power dynamics, he posted some thoughts on power on Facebook, and he made a, a really insightful statement. Power wants to always control the narrative. Power wants to always control the narrative. And patriarchy has been the narrative for hundreds and thousands of years, going back to the beginning of the story of humankind, according to the Bible. But that narrative has been built on a house of cards. Patriarchy is based on a biased and inconsistent translation or interpretation of the Bible. And I want to tell you that in this time that we're living, that house is falling apart as more and more biblical scholarship is showing and exposing a faulty narrative. So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning giving you an idea of how the Bible is not supportive of patriarchy and is actually subversive to it. But before I get started, I first want to say this with all earnestness and apology. There is a conversation that we're not going to engage this morning. We'll be taking a look at the biblical narrative set within a patriarchal society 
that was gender binary. You were either male or female, a woman or a man. I want to acknowledge that my perspective is as a cisgendered woman. Cisgendered means that the sex that was assigned to me at birth, female, is the one that I identify with. But there are those in our current culture and in our churches who are non-binary. Those who are intersex or non-cis transgender. And so I will be talking about the Bible in binary terms, but I'm mindful of our culture in which there are non-binary perspectives. Okay? So how does the Bible actually subvert patriarchy when it looks like it's supporting it? So I'm going to start with Genesis, of course, because that's the beginning of the story. And probably the most life-changing discovery came for me as a woman when I started to reread Genesis 1 and 2. And as I started asking some critical questions, I discovered that the narrative I was reading was quite different than the one that was being told to me by male theologians. Let me share a few things I learned, and we'll start with Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27. Let me read that. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. These verses tell us a couple of things. For one, the center of our theology of gender needs to include a really clear understanding of what the image of God means. And verse 27 tells us that God is most fully imaged through the relationship between men and women together, male and female together. Men will miss a part of God if they're not engaging in relationships with women and vice versa. Secondly, male and female together are to rule over the earth. There is not a single hint of hierarchy here. In fact, there's nowhere in Scripture that God commands a hierarchical structure based on gender. Instead, we have this verse in which God is actually commanding a sharing of power. If you were to read all of Genesis 1, there's something else you might notice, and that is marriage terms are completely absent from this story. Creation story number one has nothing to do with marriage. And in, this is really important when it comes to the inclusion of singles in our community. How well you image God or rule creation has nothing to do with your marital status. Becoming your full self is not dependent on you being married. As a single, your place in this community and at the table is just as vital as anyone else's. And without you, we miss out on knowing God more fully. Now, Genesis 2 is the second creation story, and its focus is definitely on the marriage relationship. But there's one word that's used uh, to diminish women, and it's found in verse, 20, uh, verse 18, where God says this, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The term helper has been used traditionally to argue that the wife is second to, his, to her husband. 
that her role is to serve his needs and to help him achieve his dreams. Now, the Hebrew phrase for helper suitable for him is ezer kenegdo. But the root words for ezer actually mean power and strength. If you look up other places in the Old Testament where this word is used, where Azer is applied, the majority of them refer to God, to God as a helper to the nation Israel. Often it's in some kind of a military conquest. I don't think anyone would argue that God is second to his people, right? Konegdo means corresponding to or same as. And so if you put those two Hebrew words together, you get this definition of her role, and it's not secondary. The woman is a rescuer equal to him or a strength corresponding to him. And with the military imagery attached to Azer, you could say that the woman is a co-warrior with him. Understanding Azer Konegdo changes the dynamic completely. Marriage was not established with a power differential. God intended a relationship of mutuality. Marriage is not a relationship of power over, but power with, as Kurt described last week. Then we come to Genesis 3, and that changes everything. In this narrative, Adam and Eve fail to lean into each other as co-warriors when they encounter the serpent. It resulted in the fall of humankind. The consequence? The curse of patriarchy. God tells Eve in verse 16, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Patriarchy has never been blessed by God. It is part of the curse that Christ came to undo. Okay, if that's the real narrative of the creation story, what do we do with the rest of the Bible? You know, the more that I read my Bible, the more hope that I have as a woman. It is full of subversive intent. The Junia Project is a uh, website that advocates for women, and one of the co-founders, Kate Wallace Nunnally, uh, was asked to summarize in 30 seconds why she supports women in leadership, and she gave this brilliant answer. Deborah leading Israel, Hulda interpreting the law for the nation, Esther saving God's people from genocide, Miriam leading worship, Mary Magdalene, the first to preach the gospel. Mary of Bethany, anointing Jesus as the Messiah. Mary of Nazareth, birthing the Savior of the world. Anna, the prophet. Tabitha, a disciple known for her good works. Priscilla, who corrected false teaching. Lydia and Nympha, hosting house churches. Joanna and Susanna, disciples who traveled with Jesus. Junia, the apostle. Phoebe, the deacon. At the end of her 30 seconds, Kate closed with this. Perhaps we should allow women today to do as many things as the women of the Bible did. Think about that one. (laughs) Every book in the Bible has been written by men, yet it contains a large number of stories of amazing women. And I could add 
quite a number more to Kate's list. She didn't have more than 30 seconds, though. And that's unusual. I, was, I took this, uh, I had to take in seminary a church history class, and they, it, we had to use this textbook, and it was full of stories of, of amazing men who were leaders and movers in the church. But there was only one woman in the whole textbook. And it was a queen of England that I definitely did not look to as being any model of a Christian woman for me. In contrast to most history books that are predominantly written by men, the Bible is full of women I admire. Remember, power wants to control the narrative, right? Well, the Bible writers subverted that power by telling women's stories. It's an amazing book. Now, we come to the New Testament, and when we try to understand how it views patriarchy and women, we have two major figures that we should look at. Obviously, Jesus is one of them. And then there's Paul the Apostle. <laughs> uh, I'm going to start with Paul because he's the most complicated with a really bad reputation. Okay? I know that some of you, uh, and I know some, who would rather not read his writings ever. But let me say this, that a lot of work has been done with Paul's writings, and, um, and a lot of it, sh they, they show that Paul actually was also subversive to his culture. Here are some examples. In Romans 16, he names 25 people, giving the highest praise to five men and seven women as co-workers. And one of them, Junia the Apostle, Man, she has caused a lot of grief to church leaders down through the centuries, to the point that some Bible translations purposely changed her name to a male form, insisting that an apostle could never be a female. Now, Paul really made a radical statement within his culture when he said this in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That was radical. That was subversive. Now, I, I do admit that there are some issues, some problem passages about women found in Paul's writings, but almost all of them can be explained once you understand the context of the churches that he's writing to. For example, in Ephesians, his command that everyone, male and female, are to submit to one another would have been shocking in patriarchal culture. And then his description of the husband-wife relationship where the husband was to love the wife as Christ loved the church, that was actually subversive to the, the, the normal Roman house codes that were in place during his time. Now, it would take me hours <laughs> to work through all the issues with Paul, so I'm going to leave them for now. Um, maybe if there's interest, we can have a class and unpack these a little bit more, some of these difficult passages. But let's talk about Jesus now, because he was definitely subversive to patriarchy. He showed great respect to women and included them in his ministry and mission. Often, he praised their faith over the faith of his own male disciples. He engaged women in theological discussions 
and he protected them from abusive practices. I want to talk about one story, though, an encounter that Jesus had with a Canaanite woman, and it's told in Matthew 15, so let me read that story. Verses 21 through 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. <clears throat> okay, most people who read this story get really uncomfortable. <laughs> you have to admit, Jesus is not sounding really nice at all, right? First, he gives the silent treatment to this woman who's crying out, which in the Greek suggests like she is screaming continuously behind them. She is desperate. Then the disciples ask Jesus to send her away. Now, he doesn't dismiss her, but he gives a harsh reason why he's not going to give her what she wants. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Well, she hears that, and she moves really fast. She gets to the front in front of them, blocks their path, and then kneels in front of Jesus in this posture of humility and worship. And she pleads again, Lord, help me. In his third response, his, he rebuffs her again. And this time, I mean, it sounds like an insult. He calls her a dog. A lot of ink has been spilled trying to explain Jesus' behavior here. Uh, some have tried to soften the tone by saying that the word for dog has a form that suggests maybe it was a puppy. <laughs> it's still a dog, <laughs> okay? For the Jews, the term dogs normally referred to people who were really hostile to, uh, towards God's people or to, uh, towards the law. She is identified by Matthew as being a Canaanite. It's an ancient name for a people group that historically were considered enemies of Israel. So this detail reinforces the fact that, yeah, this was an, an insult. Now, if you're squirming with this particular name-calling by Jesus, yeah, I don't blame you. I certainly do, too. Um, but you're going to have to figure out what to do with Jesus when he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Or what do you do when he calls the religious leaders, you whitewashed tombs? What we might call rude in our culture would be considered direct in Jewish culture. Okay, I, I, I can't resist this, but now when I hear Serena Williams calling the umpire a thief, it sounds pretty tame to me, <laughs> okay, in comparison. 
But at this point, his third response would normally have been the end of the story, okay? Because there, in the gospel narratives, there's this really interesting pattern of threes, with the third being the final word or the resolution or the end of the story. In the story of the Good Samaritan, he's the third person to come uh, across the, the injured Jew, and he becomes the hero of the story. Uh, in the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he's taken to three places, and then his ordeal is done. But here, Jesus' third no to the woman is not the end of the story. Get this. The woman outright disagrees with Jesus and pushes back with a final argument. This never happens in any of the other stories. She basically says, Jesus, you're wrong. Even crumbs fall from the table for dogs. In a reversal of pattern, it's the woman, not Jesus, who delivers the punchline. And that changes everything. Jesus changes his mind. One New Testament scholar, Joanna Dewey, wrote this about the unique encounter. The narrative portrays Jesus being bested by a woman and changing his behavior on that account. This is the only instance in the extant tradition of Jesus being taught by someone. And that someone is a woman who should not properly be speaking to him at all. Jesus held all the power. He was a male, an Israelite, and then he held the ultimate power card. He was a Lord, son of David. He might have had a specific mission, but so did the woman. She used her voice, her posture, and a lot of creativity <laughs> to interrupt Jesus and push back on his refusals. She challenged his mission. He never once used his privilege to dismiss her, but he did create the space for a dialogue of give and take, of resistance and counter-resistance. And in that space, he gave her the power to change his mind. And that is the kind of space, the kind of dialogue and exchange of give and take, of learning and changing minds, that's a part of how we at Cascade can disrupt patriarchy. Okay, minus the insults. Okay, we'll let those go. <laughs> but anyway, at this point, I'm going to ask Kurt to come up here, and we're going to have a little give and take for the next few minutes on the issue of gender and power dynamics. And while he's coming up, I'd like to say that, you know, I've been coming to Cascade for a little over a year now. And when I first came here, I, I'm going to confess, I was exhausted. Um, exhausted for almost 20 years of trying to follow Jesus, but then trying to uh, tiptoe or having to tiptoe carefully around men's egos and then navigate all the barriers that were set up to control my voice and my gifts. So I want to tell you about an uh, experience that I had a few months after I started attending here. And um, Sarah had invited me to be a part of the planning team for the Women's R events. And I became aware of something that, um, from my perspective, uh, did not seem fair. I found out that the church offered a stipend to any outside speakers who preached from the pulpit, but the outside speakers for the women's events 
were not paid anything, were not given a stipend. Even though many of them had significant platforms as authors and speakers. So it took me a while <laughs> to uh, decide whether I would bring it up because to tell you the truth, my past experiences of, of questioning practices did not go over too well. <laughs> okay. I would end up being silenced or marginalized. And um, I didn't know Kurt well enough um, to know if I was really safe, but I figured, you know, if it didn't turn out well, I might as well find out sooner than later rather than waste my time at a place where I didn't fit. <laughs> okay, so I went for it. And I first spoke to Sarah first, and she validated my question and then took it to Kurt. So I was a bit surprised at the response, the immediate positive response I got. Do you want to explain what happened or what you did? Yeah, I, I mean, when you start a church, because our church is still in the first couple of years, um, you're kind of building and scaffolding, and it's all happening at once. And while there's things that we certainly are intentional about and we think about, there's other things that escape notice. And as we were going and as we were building this thing, this was a huge blind spot. Um, you know, we didn't set out to like, okay, now we need to reinforce the patriarchy with Cascade. How can we do that? Not paying women. Brilliant. Let's do it. It was just a blind spot. We, we didn't think about it. We didn't have it on there. And so when it came up, we really appreciated, oh my gosh, that's terrible. That, that wasn't the intention. That wasn't, the heart of Women Are was to create a safe spot for the females of the church to come together. And intentionally for, um, we feel like it's really important for groups that have been marginalized or oppressed to have a safe space for their voices and for them to share. So not paying was something that worked actively against our heart and vision for it. And so while it wasn't a perfect, we said, well, let's create a new budget line item. Let's start working on that. Um, and that kind of ties into the eight-week experiment. We're a church in progress. <laughs> we want to go there together. Um, and when we have our staff meetings, it's not like 30 minutes of high fives about how we're nailing it. <laughs> we're, we're trying to figure this thing out, and we want you all to come be a part of it. And we, we hope we can always respond well, um, but we want to be able to take that in and say, yeah, we got, we got further to go. And I can't tell you how that encouraged my heart and just like, okay, this is different. Yeah. Um, okay, so Kurt, I did something. <laughs> I, um, I did a little uh, uh, information gathering and I noticed for the last eight and a half months since the beginning of January, I um, counted out, counted up how many times men have spoken and how many times women have spoken up here from the front. And um, out of the 37 weeks, 38% were women and 62% were men. Then I went back another 37 weeks into 2017 and I counted up to compare and 16% um, were women, and 84% were men. So you have over, uh, I mean, the Cascade has over double the number of weeks that women preach in this year. So what's with that? And I am not complaining, okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, part of it goes back to when we started. Um, I was joking with Sarah this morning. Most of those Sundays was me... Like, we got done with, like, we have a church, and it was Sunday morning. It was like, okay, time to write the sermon <laughs> up there in the balcony. 
And so a lot of that would fall on, on me because I didn't want to put that on someone else. Like, hey, could you, you create this? But after we've kind of gotten established, um, it's not an accident that we've had women preaching more often. And that's not something that's like a season, you know. Uh, if you've been a part of church cultures before, sometimes there's like initiatives and we get all excited about it. And it's like, yeah, let's do this for a while. And then it like changes. And we're like, eh, we're, we're kind of over that. Um, the reason why we, we do this is because it's central to the gospel. Um, and, and just for a second, if you've been here this morning at any point, you're like, why are we talking about this? What, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does it have to do with church? Like, can we just like talk about the Bible and do that? Part of that is I would suggest that might be a symptom of the symptom, the system's working for you on some level. If you don't know why we're talking about this, then the system's probably working for you. And that actually extends to conversations about race, about sexuality, about all kinds of different conversations. If you're like, I don't know why we're talking about this, it might be because it's working for you. But that means that it's not working for someone else. And I think what that exposes is Jesus didn't come and Jesus didn't invite us to the kingdom of God that works for some and not others. The good news of Jesus Christ isn't like, this is going to work for 50% of you really well. And then when you die, the other 50% will get their turn. (laughs) We as a Christian community are called to see and engage and move forward. And if you're like, but this has been a history for thousands of years, we have not been living in the kingdom of God for thousands of years. We have further to go. We have more work to do. And I really, truly believe that if there's one God who created all people, we don't have the fullest expression of that God unless we have a diversity of people that are preaching. Now, I know because of Harriet, when I, she sent me, like, hey, here's the numbers, um, I was discouraged. Oh, yeah. I was like, why isn't it 50-50? Like, why aren't, why aren't we there yet? Um, and we're coming. <laughs> we're working towards it. We're, we're working towards do that. But a big part of this is because we think this is all central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This isn't secondary. And we can say that these are the values we have, but if it's not reflecting how we actually allow it at church, then it's kind of a, a joke. And the other thing is if you would indulge me, because this kind of plays into the same concept. Uh, No judgment if you didn't grow up in a church. That's not the point of why I want to do this. But if you grew up in a church, if you could just yell out, what was the name of your pastor? (laughs) Ooh, they they caught on quickly. (laughs) They did, yeah. Uh, I didn't hear a lot of Susans. And, And what that means is predominantly are the pastors that we grew up with are male, And so that means that we as a community have been conditioned to hear spiritual truth through male voices. So what that means is as we transition to having more females speak, uh, that might be a hard transition for some of you. Not because women can't preach or women can't speak or God's truth isn't speaking through there, but because we've been cultured and trained and conditioned, sometimes for decades And I think that's a big reason with that story where a woman or a person of color will share an idea and and then a white male will say it and everyone's like, great idea. I think that's an effect of conditioning. That white males write the books, have the ideas, they're the inventors, they're the ones that come up with the ideas. So when they say it, we go, aha. And so if you come to church and you're like, I struggle with women preaching, that's okay. We've all been conditioned and cultured, both men and women. 
But sit with that for a bit and say, why is that there? Um, because if we don't acknowledge that, what you're saying is the image of God is not in this person and God can't speak through this person, this community. And I wouldn't question your sexism. I would question your theology at that point. Well, then who is God? How does God speak through us? Um, at a previous church, I was in this group that talked about gender or female uh, women in the church. And um, this one young man said that he was a feminist. By the way, my husband was a feminist before I became one. <laughs> um, he uh, said, this is important to me because the more women find their voice and their identity in Christ rather than in men's definitions and ideals, then I will find out what it means to be a man. He's, do you get that? The sooner that women get there, the sooner to talk about there as well. And so it's important to talk about in the church. Any last words before we close or anything, last thoughts? Yeah, I mean, as a male, especially as a white male, when I met with Connie Baker, when we, we set off this, this message here, she talked about power dynamics. She just kind of had a list of like, these are the people that have more power in our current culture and society. And it was like, me, still me, 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 yep, oh no, oh shoot, literally it's all me. <laughs> and in that, if you, if you are a male in the room and you feel any part of yourself resist or you feel kind of attacked, the goal isn't that you would walk out of here feeling bad. If you've been a human being, your life has had challenge. Being a male in our culture, even in a patriarchy, isn't going around feeling awesome all day. Um, so if you're like, oh, the goal is to make me feel bad about that, that other people have different experiences, no. And no one believes that all of your life has just been given to you because you're a male. But it is to question, but what is the larger system and what is the voice of the person that hasn't had this experience? I don't have to have experienced it. I need to just hear it and listen to it and identify with it. And what would that feel like? And ultimately, we take that information. If you walk out of here and you're like, my takeaway is I'm going to go feel bad as a man. No thanks. We don't need men feeling bad. We need men stepping into and saying, how do we move towards equality? How do we create more space that normally I've been given or I've been allowed? And how do I offer that and create it for someone else? Um, because feeling bad isn't the method of Jesus and it's not the method of the church. It doesn't do anyone any good. There's something more that we're called to create. Yeah. So we're both going to close with a benediction, and we have not worked out what we're going to say in our <laughs> benediction. <laughs> so I think I'm going to go first. <laughs> so why don't you stand with us? Cascade, may we be a place that's safe for both men and women where you can live fully into your identity as being in Christ, where you can learn from each other, give and take, and grow together because you need each other. You're interdependent. Where we can be mutually growing, but also in a synergistic way where we actually are bigger when we're together than we are divided. May the thriving of one be the thriving for all.
And may Christ's message move through us all and live out in us all for true equality and true celebration of who God's made us to be. Amen and amen. Amen. Have a great Sunday.